Mac Power Users, Episode 95, Workflows with Dr. Drang. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. Along with me is Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. I'm very excited about this show. We have our first anonymous guest in the history of the Mac Power Users. And that anonymous. is the, the one and only Dr as I call him, the good doctor, Dr. Drang. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, David. Thank you, Katie. I am I'm not anonymous. I am pseudonymous. Well, there you Pseud- go. Pseudonymous. There we go. That's how, how appropriate. I can spell it. I can't pronounce it. You're not a snowman? I, I, well, yes. It's, it's, that, that has nothing to do with my name. Oh. But I think it's appropriate that we have started the show and you have corrected me within the first place. Because <laughs> I need you in my life, Doctor. Honestly, your, your, your uh, posts always help me get things straight. And uh, yeah. we decided before the show that uh, rather than call you Dr. Drang, because you said that made you feel a little weird, um, we, are, we have made it an entirely fictional name for you, and it is going to be Mark. So today, you're Mark. You okay and, with that, Doctor? Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, okay. I'm fine. All right. That'll be good. So uh, you run this amazing website. Um, uh, I always call it Dr. Drang, but the actual URL is, what is it again? LeanCrew.com, yes. L-E-A-N-C-R-E-W. And now, there's got to be a story behind that name that I'm, I'm hoping you'll tell us later, too. There is a story behind that name, but I can't tell you that story, oh, unfortunately. Okay. I can tell All you right. about the snowman, but I can't tell you about uh, Lean Crew. I love that there are secrets. I just love that. Um, so, so um, Mark is an is a, an engineer, a PhD engineer, and he does a lot of expert witness type work and a lot of really important research on things that break. I guess is that a good way to put it? I yes, I'm um, my life is a study in failure. I, yeah. I I look at things that break, as is mine, although it's from a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so Mark does this amazing work, and in the meantime. He's a nerd, right? And he loves to write about interesting things about how to make his Mac work very efficiently. And he has all these scripts and automation things he does. And then occasionally he does a post about something like uh, a lawnmower bolt breaking and the the fracture of the bolt. And yeah, for, I love for, I love those posts. Yeah, and for some reason the combination of everything you do on your website just tickles me in every every possible way. So well, thanks. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I always follow it. In fact, I was telling you earlier, my niece, who is a science teacher, um, thinks that she could build lesson plans around several of your posts and has probably already done it. <laughs> you know, so um, uh, it, it's really it's really fascinating to follow the stuff you do. And the whole time is, you know, you're, you're an expert witness and you don't want to be sitting in a deposition and have somebody say, well, what about the time you wrote the funny post about the Apple iPad or something like that uh, in your deposition testimony, or to the extent that you're talking about scientific type stuff on your website? You don't want that being thrown at you in court either. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I'm happy. Everything that I write that's of a scientific nature, uh, certainly I'd be happy to defend. It's just it's the other stuff that's sort of way off topic that I don't really want to be talking about. Uh, yeah. in my professional life. So that's pretty much why I have been uh, using this assumed name of Dr. Drang. Uh, people have asked me in the past, what, why Drang? And it's the German word for stress. Okay, and, I like uh, that. <laughs> and no German speaker has ever corrected me on that, so I believe that I am actually 
right when I say that it's the German word for stress. And so, and my my specialty uh, in my PhD analysis in my thesis work was stress analysis. So, Dr. Drang seemed appropriate. Okay, so so what you do over at um, and the the blog is called and now it's all this. Yes, which is a John Lennon quote. Yeah, and um, and what you do is you cover whatever's interesting to you, and you do some science based posts or I guess engineering based posts about things you come across and you do a lot of Mac automation stuff. Uh, lately you've been on a, a tear about tweets. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, it, it's one of the probably annoying things about my blog is that it's kind of a real time dump of what I happen to be doing that day or, or for the last couple days, I don't really plan these, uh, these posts out in advance and I don't spend a lot of time, uh, tweaking them and making them better, or even, frankly, finishing the script sometimes before I write about it. And so, yeah, recently I've been talking about embedding tweets uh, a lot, probably to uh, to the detriment of my page views, uh, because I've, I've been embedding tweets for quite a while, and I have, I really don't like the way Twitter's embedded tweet code works. There, You, you don't really know what is being done with it because the code is all hosted off on their site and you're just linking to it. So, um, you know, does it, does it track your users? People think it tracks your users. I don't know whether that's the case or not. I don't like the way it looks either. I like my site to look the way I want it to look, not the way Twitter thinks it should look. So, Oh, it was like a year and a half ago or more than that. Maybe, uh, I ran across something called blackbird pie which was a Python script written by Jeff Miller. And he had taken this an idea from something called Blackbird Pi, P-I-E, um, a, a JavaScript thing. And it was a way of using the Twitter API to grab information about a tweet and embed it into your, uh, into your blog post or, or any uh, article that you have on the Internet. And what it does, nicely, if, you're, if you are clever about it, and, and Jeff Miller was very clever, is it grabs the information, it uses a combination of HTML and CSS, and, and now with my changes to it, some JavaScript as well, to um, format the tweet so it looks sort of like the way it would look on the Twitter site, but possibly with your own uh, fonts or your own font sizes, things like that. So you get you get some control, and it's better than, to my way of thinking, it's better than a screenshot of a tweet because all the because it's live. Uh, the text is actually there; it's searchable in in your uh, in your blog, and all of the links in within the tweet are live. So if you click on somebody's handle uh, at Dr. Drang, it will go to my page on Twitter, just like it would if you were looking at, the, at that tweet on the Twitter homepage. Uh, if somebody has put a link in their, uh, in their tweet, clicking on it will take you there. So it's, it works better than a screenshot because of those live features. And 
it's formatted. It can be formatted the way you want it to be formatted. So it fits in with the theme of your, uh, of your blog. You know, Twitter lately feels to me like this really great restaurant and you go in there and you love the soup and all of a sudden you start feeling like it tastes a little bit more like water every time you go in. And, uh, I don't know what's going on with them. I mean, I've seen these posts where they're talking about how they're going to start cracking down on the third party API and this embedded tweet thing is that's like started within the last year and a half or so as well. I mean, it seems to me that they really, they're doing something over there and it doesn't feel good to me. Yeah. I think they're very concerned about lack of control and maybe they've let things, you know, Twitter does not want to be an open platform and you've got all these great third party Twitter clients. And I don't know whether they're trying to use it more as data harvesting because there was certainly all of that concern about, you know, is when you have the tweet this or follow me button that, you know, it was getting a little too Facebooky. I'm not sure what it is. Is this Twitter just trying to figure out how they're going to make money and trying to rein things in and close it off? But it is getting a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think that that has to be. I mean, they have to make some money. And I don't, I, one of the things that I try not to do on, uh, on my blog is, is talk about the business of, of computers because I don't really know much about it. I, I prefer to use them. But there's no question when you start fiddling around and you start listening to uh, what people say about Twitter, it's, they were very, very open. They were treating it like an open platform. You always knew that it wasn't. But they made this API very open. Certainly, um, one of the reasons it's been so successful and has exploded in popularity is because of all the third-party Twitter clients that were really cool and did things that uh, the native Twitter – well, there was no native Twitter client – but did things that the, that, uh, the web app didn't do. Uh, and I think people who make commercial Twitter clients like Craig Hockenberry and uh, the people at Tapbots – naturally feel a little used um, and, and will especially feel used if their, if their applications get shut down in the future. I, uh, and, and I feel a little bit concerned about this myself because several of the things that I do with Twitter are things that use the API. Now, I am not particularly worried about the crackdowns that are allegedly coming because I'm such a small player and nobody does, um, you know, I, I have my own Twitter client, Dr. Twoot, which I hijacked from, um, oh heck, what was the guy's name? That's, that's embarrassing. Uh, it was a, a, a GitHub project called Twoot and I stole it and rejiggered it and called it uh, Dr. Twoot. And forgot you'd done that. Yeah. And I and I've written too many posts about what I do in Doctor Toot as well. But it uses the it uses the Twitter API, and I'm I love it. I to me it is the perfect Twitter client because I wrote it, and so it's very much tailored to my idiosyncrasies and the way I use Twitter. Um, fortunately, because there's only one person in the world using Doctor Toot, I am not going to have any problems with you know too many hits to the API which is what I think one of the things that they've been doing is they've, they've been limiting how many times you can hit the API for requests per hour, let's say. Well, I'm never going to hit the API for more than 10 to 20 hits in an hour. So I'm going to be flying under the radar for a long time. And all these things with embedded tweets, they hit the API as well. But again, that's 
you know, it's rare. It's, it's, uh, you know, a few times a day at most. Uh, so I, f- I feel what I'm doing is pretty safe. I think they'll keep the API open, uh, but I think they're probably going to start charging for, well, I think they are charging for use of the API if you're hitting it a lot. Uh, maybe I'm talking through my, through my, uh, nether orifice. Uh, on that, but I think that's I think that's true. But they do have, but they have free numbers of hits, and they might be cracking down on that. But I don't think they'll ever, they're ever going to reduce it to a level where I have to worry about it. Well, I, I don't begrudge them that they need to make money, obviously. Sure. But the uh, I do think that if they start changing the way everything works, like I can no longer use Tweetbot, then you know, then I'll honestly start thinking about other options because I don't have any desire to use their website and. I don't have much faith in them to just properly support the Mac and the iOS based on what they did with, with Tweety. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, Tweety, Tweety was so good. And, and I never used the Mac client, but uh, which I guess is the, is the bad one right now um, because it just hasn't been updated in such a long time. But I used, I used Tweety for, for the, on the iPhone for a really long time. And it was, it was excellent. It was so good in those early days. And, sure. I I just can't imagine using it again. Yeah. Um. So anyway, we're well mo- moving on. Uh, so mm-hmm. l- let's talk about what you do. So you're. You know, you're, David. Before we go there, maybe maybe we should take a quick break and and talk about our first sponsor. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Well, our first sponsor on today's show is One Password, and you know, another week goes by, and we hear by yet another you know, password hack breach. And this time it's a major website that was affected. This time it was Yahoo that had another breach of passwords. And I had forgotten that I had a Yahoo password, candidly. I had a Yahoo account many, many years ago, but I kept my Yahoo account because I used it for things like Flickr and all of these other services that Yahoo still had. Remember, Yahoo used to run delicious. Yahoo used to have a lot of still cool stuff. And I guess they do still have some cool stuff, although I don't use a lot of them. I don't know if my particular password was hacked, but of course, using 1Password, I took the opportunity to go in and change my password. And a lot of people say, you know, the big barrier to me using one of these password management programs is it's such a pain. I mean, I've got to go in and manage all my passwords and remember to put them in and remember to upload them and remember to to use the password generator. But the beauty about 1Password is they have integrated so completely into the web browser. And it's whatever web browser you want to use for the Mac or even uh, for the PC, whether you're using Safari, whether you're using Chrome, whether you're using Firefox. Uh, It even worked, um, I think, on Internet Explorer on my PC at work. And that's shocked me. I didn't know how it was doing that. But it was just stunning. The people at 1Password are so smart. But I went into Yahoo. I signed in with 1Password on Safari found their little accounts page, changed my password, used the random password generator, and one password popped down a little drop-down box that said, I noticed you just changed your password. Do you want me to remember to save that for you? And I said, yes. And it said, do you want to replace your current password? I said, yes. The whole process took about 30 seconds, and I was done. And now I've got a brand-new updated password. I know that my other passwords weren't compromised because I was using a unique password. And problem solved. You know, another thing that arises out of this Yahoo fiasco is that there's a lot Isn't that of funny to say the Yahoo fiasco. Yeah, it is kind of funny, uh, but <laughs> people have published the list of all these passwords. So now we have real data about passwords people are using in the wild. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of horrifying. I mean, there's so many people that use the word password as their password. Oh my gosh. And there's so many people that had 
one character passwords. I mean, they let you get a one character. You could use the letter A as your password or P, I guess, if you're really smart, right? <laughs> um, uh, so it's really remarkable. And one of the, the benefits of one password is it takes the work out of creating passwords. I mean, you can go up there and there's a little slider and you push a button and it gives you a password and it's a really secure password. And you can set different parameters. For instance, in all of my passwords, I guess this is going to help the hackers out there. I don't make it, I make it so it doesn't give me characters and symbols that look similar, like a lowercase L and, you know, I just don't want to have that because then it gets confusing if I'm trying to type it in. So I just, I click that box. Um, So, but one password does this and you can just run a slider and make it a 30 character password. And when you want to set a new password for your Yahoo account or whatever you're, you're setting up, you can make that as extreme as you want. And it doesn't matter because the software is going to remember for you. You have these crazy Yeah, I just, I just changed mine. Yahoo now supports up to 32 uh, characters. I guess they've learned that. And I think you can have as low as like three or four characters. So no more one character passwords. Yeah, but I just amazing? Sl- oh. So I always look to see, okay, what's the, what's the highest level of password that this service will select or accept? And then I'll move the little one password slider to whatever that point is. I think we need to add a corollary to that. If you sign up for any web service that makes it possible to make a one-character password, then you should not sign up for that service (laughs) because obviously they don't take security serious at all. Um, so you can find more information about 1Password over at OnePassword.com. They're available everywhere. Like I said, that's the beauty of 1Password. It syncs via Dropbox. You can get them on your Mac. You can get them on your PC. You can get them on your iOS device. You can get them on your Android device. Uh, and that's the beauty is that all your passwords sync up, and it's available wherever you go. So there's the Mac App Store version for $49.99. If you use a Windows PC, you can go to the 1Password website and get a Mac and Windows bundle for $69.99. For your iOS devices, you can get the Pro version for $14.99 that works on both the iPad and the iPhone. Or for $9.99, you can get either the iPad or the iPhone version. And don't forget, if you use the link on our site over at MacPowerUsers.com, you can save 20% off anything that you purchase through the Agile Bits store. So take advantage of that if you can. It's just a, a small company full of wicked smart people making super software that really is mandatory. Go get it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, thanks, One Password, for your continued support. Uh, you know, I when I came over from, I was a Linux user for many years, and I had my own system for handling my passwords. I was trying to not use, do the One Password thing, not knowing about One Password at the time, and not have the same password for every site, but have them listed in a secure file on my on my uh, hard disk, and it was itself encrypted with a with a single password. It kind of worked that way. Um, and when I moved over to the Mac, I heard a lot of people talking about 1Password. Merlin Mann was talking about it all the time uh, uh, on the uh, uh, MacBreak Weekly show. And I used to think, oh, you know, I could. why would I ever have that? I've got this thing that's tuned to the way I work. It really works well. And one day, eventually, I, I succumbed and, and gave it a trial. And it was so much better than what I had done. And yeah. it was so convenient. And, you know, once you are logged into it, for, and, I, and I don't have mine logged in all the time because uh, I, I don't I don't trust that. But it it just fills everything in. I mean, it's, there's no cutting and pasting. It's just it just all flows right into the places that it's supposed to go. It's so much better than what I'd had before. Oh yeah, I mean, I I just can't get by without it. Every day, I'm I'm in that application. Um. So, so Mark, let's talk a little bit about this business of yours. Yeah. 
What do you do? What I do is provide consulting engineering, uh, which lots of people do. And what I specialize in, uh, and there are quite a few people in this business as well, what I specialize in is problems, uh, largely failures, things things that aren't working right. Uh, This can be uh, something that's in production, a piece of equipment that's in production, and there's something going wrong, and as they are trying to test the pieces, uh, they, they don't work. Uh, things that have escaped, uh, they've gotten out of production and they're out in the field and they're starting to suffer some field failures. Why are they having, why are they having field failures? I look into things like that. Um, in, insurance companies are, are often interested in why things have failed because they are looking, as you guys both know, looking to subrogate uh, after they pay off their policyholder. They're looking to get some of that money back if, in fact, something was defective or somebody uh, in particular was at fault that they can blame. And then, of course, uh, lawyers hire me when they are involved in lawsuits. I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> well, it's, uh, lawyers are wonderful people uh, in many ways and not so wonderful people in other ways. And it, it really depends on you know, which, <laughs> which side you're on. Um, that's, that's actually what? very astute. <laughs> most, <laughs> most lawyers I know, if are, they're working for you, they're fine. Enough. They're great. Yes, I, you know, I wouldn't even say that. I, I think most lawyers I know are pretty spectacular people, but man, there's some real, and they're so good at it. Yes, yes, there there are people who seem to um, make it their life's work. Katie, have I ever shared the photocopier story? No, I don't think I've heard the photo. This is a good one. Okay. Okay. So first day of law school. And when I went to law school, I mean, my family is very blue collar. My father loaded lumber on a truck and I grew up swinging a hammer. It wasn't, you know, it was never expected that I'd go to law school. And they were very concerned that going to law school would ruin me. And, uh, and, you know, I was a little worried about it myself, frankly. And so I started law school first day. And one of my classes, the teacher was writing the book, so the book wasn't published yet. So we had to go every day and photocopy the cases to read for the next day. And so I'm at the, you know, first day of law school, literally, and I'm in line and there's a girl in front of me making copies and she's copying one page at a time. You know how in the copier you you push the button, then you move the book and push the other, to show the other page and you push the button again. And it's taking forever. And there's a reduce button there, and the glass is really big. So I said, hey, you know, if you just press the reduce button, you can do two at once, and you can be done twice as fast and save, you know, half the cost. And she looks at me really snarky and says, I knew that. And I'm like, okay, just suggesting. Yeah, I wasn't. I didn't say it like passive-aggressive or mean. I was, I was really trying to be helpful, and she was not happy with that. So I go to – there was another room, and someone said, there's a copy over there. So I went over there. You know, first day of law school, I can't even find the bathroom, you know. And so I went and found the other copier, and I took pictures with reducing it and got my case copied. And as I'm walking out, I walk by her, and now she's still there. But now she's doing it with the reduce button pushed, <laughs> you know. She couldn't have said, oh, oh, thanks, you know. She had to, like, rip my head off. And then as soon as I was out of the room, start using that technique – and I remember going in and to the cafeteria and sitting down and saying, okay, this is the rest of your life, and it's not too late. I was on scholarship. I could have just walked out the door right there. <laughs> and I literally thought about it for about an hour. And I said, okay, just because there's people like that, I don't have to go there. But that was my first day of law school. 
And you've been living with that mistake ever since. Uh, not really. I mean, <laughs> frankly, I just choose not to go there. I mean, I have I deal with lawyers in other cases that act like that, and they have their fun. But it really, in the end of the day, all it does is cost their client a bunch of money, and they usually end up losing. So it's okay. Yeah, you don't. They don't get a lot of friends among yeah. among the brother and sisterhood. Okay, well, that was totally that. unrelated, but I had to tell that story. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so what I do is, and, and even when I was in graduate school, uh, what I was studying was failure uh, and likelihoods of failure. I was looking at it from sort of the prospective. My research was on the, the prospective side of failure, trying to predict probabilities of failure, which is something that uh, is necessary in determining the appropriate factors of safety in design. Um, how much should you overbuild your building? Well, that depends on um, how likely you are to get material that's a little bit weaker than it ought to be, how likely you are the building is to see loads that are greater than you're expecting, and things like that. And those are all statistical questions. One of the things that you may see on my site from time to time are posts about probability and statistics, which is a little far afield. Most engineers don't get into that, but I did because of that kind of research that I did back in graduate school. Uh, Since leaving academics, uh, I'm looking more at failure from the retrospective side. Something has failed. Why did it fail? Uh, What can be done to stop it from failing again? Uh, That sort of thing. What were the consequences of the failure? And this is all sorts of different types of products, correct? It, it is, because my, my, my background is, I, my degrees are all in civil engineering, and they were with an emphasis on what's called engineering mechanics, which is you know, the study of stress and strain and move, movement, uh, forces movement, and internal forces, which would be stress and strain, and, and fractures. And so that, that has pretty broad uh, application in engineering. You can look at lots of different kinds of things when you have that background. So, and, I don't, and I don't want to get you in trouble, uh, but just can you tell me some of the types of stuff you've worked on in the past? Uh, I, there are uh, industrial equipment, so things like presses and shears and other things that you'd see in a factory that are used to make, uh, make other things. Some consumer equipment, consumer things, although I don't do as much consumer uh, work, consumer product work as, as I do industrial work. Construction equipment, uh, a lot of construction equipment, dozers, uh, ba- uh, excavators, cranes, things like that, and uh, buildings themselves. Uh, it's surprising how many buildings collapse. You know, it's funny. I'm from that city. makes me feel good. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's surprising because it's more than zero, I guess. Okay. You know, it, it does happen. Uh, and, and, of course, quite often the collapses occur um, while the building's under construction, which is sort of when it's at its most fragile. Yeah. Because sure. p- parts, aren't, parts aren't all together at that the, point. I've, I've had several cases involving tilt-ups over the years. And, man, it, just keep me away from any tilt-up building until that thing is, is completely big. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, uh, you know, when I go to, I go to Chicago once a year for the ABA tech show and, mm-hmm. uh, growing up in Southern California, everything here is, um, is wood frame stucco covered. I mean, everything. And when I go to Chicago and 
drive around and see all these houses made entirely of brick, it just gives me the creeps, you know, because I'm just thinking, man, earthquake, this place is just coming down. And, uh, you know, I know you guys never have earthquakes back there, or rarely, I guess. But They're pretty rare here, yes. But, it, man, it's it so freaks me out. But that's now it's, a, it's a funny thing, because when I've been out west, uh, I, I did a project several years ago uh, in Las Vegas where it had, it had to do with that, the kind of construction you're talking about, where it's frame and, stu- and stucco. It seemed like the cheapest crap I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> I just, oh my God, these buildings are all hollow. I can't believe it. Where's the insulation? Well, you know, it, yeah, it doesn't but, get cold out there. That's well, it doesn't get cold, and also it shakes. So when it shakes, that that stuff bends. It doesn't break. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you can you can do uh, you can do wonderful things with uh, with masonry construction to be able to withstand an earthquake. Uh, you're probably better off. Certainly, you can't do it with unreinforced masonry, uh, and you're probably better off with steel and concrete. But you can you, you can make masonry okay. Now see, there's something I didn't know. Like I said, most I gotta, pe- we got to talk more often. Most people don't. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> especially something that was built 100 years ago. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so you do. This is the type of work you do, and you use your Mac exclusively, correct? Yes, you- I've never I've never used a Windows machine m- other than just very occasionally. Yeah, and and you do some real interesting. Uh, you have some really w- interesting workflows because you're not like the typical guest here that writes a lot of words. You do write words, but instead you're really building a case and there's a lot of science and, and images and formulas and calculations. So this I thought would be an interesting workflow show to hear. How do you pull all that together? Yeah. What, I, what I do is, and this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm constantly scripting because, uh, People, engineers who are in the design business are often working on very similar products all the time. And so they can, they get to do, uh, they get to really hone their work and, and can use some very specific pieces of software that were written once and that help them do their designs. Uh, if, if you are a bridge designer, for example, you can uh, use some bridge design uh, codes and whip out new bridges in pretty short order using the same program over and over again. Uh, I don't have that luxury because I work on lots of different kinds of projects. And so I usually end up having to write my own stuff, write my own analysis code uh, as I go along. And what I have used mostly in the past is a program called GNU Octave, uh, O-C-T-A-V-E. And it's a an open source. This I started using it when I was a Linux user, and um, it is a, a, an open source program that comes out of the University of Wisconsin. Came out of the chemical engineering department there, I believe, and it works very much like a commercial product that many engineers do use, which is called MATLAB. And I can't remember who the publisher of MATLAB is, but it doesn't make any difference. I don't use it. Octave is a it's a program. It's also a programming language, and it is a. It has lots of built-in mathematical routines, sort of like uh, just a really good scientific library that you might get if you were a Fortran programmer or a C programmer, for that matter. But um, it's built into this um, interactive environment 
where you so instead of compiling your programs and then seeing if they run, you sort of interactively build your analysis up piece by piece. And it's very convenient. It's a very pleasant environment to work in. Uh, it does a lot of things that engineers need to do, uh, sort of on the fly, built in. You don't have to. You don't have to uh, do a lot of your own detail coding. It works with matrices directly, so you can solve systems of linear equations in a, in a snap. You can solve differential equations very quickly. You can find the roots of nonlinear equations very quickly. That's one command for doing that sort of thing. So it's very good for the kind of work that engineers do, the kind of analytical work engineers do. And, and it looks like it has a visual component as well. It does do a uh, – are you, let's I'm go over okay. here to the, to the site. Yeah, it, it has its own plotting routines. Now, I don't use – I don't plot directly from, from Octave. Uh, I plot using a different program called GNU Plot. But uh, yes, you can you can plot from within Octave. I just have over the years gotten into a different workflow than that. So usually, I take my results from uh, Octave, dump them out into text files, and then move over to GNU Plot to uh, to to do the visuals and do the presentation type stuff. Octave also has some statistics. Yeah, some statistics routines. Uh, it's very much a general purpose mathematical toolbox. Is, now, is that your so, main application? Is that where you do the, the heavy lifting? It, it is. I have written all kinds of things in Octave over the years. I have written my own finite element programs in Octave. Uh, when I have particular types of analyses that don't fit in well with off-the-shelf kind of uh, programs, I will write my own, and I usually use Octave Using Octave instead of writing in, let's say, Fortran or C or, or something like that, is is less. If the program itself runs uh, more slowly than if I wrote it in a lower level language, but it takes up less of my time, and so and that's the trade off I'm willing to take, because overall my time is worth more than the computer's time. Certainly. And uh, how accessible is this to someone listening to the show? If they, you know, I guess you they obviously have engineering or some science background. Um, do you need to learn programming to run GNU Octave? Is that the way to pronounce it? Yeah, well, I, you know, the GNU project is Richard Stallman's thing. And so I, you know, I think he pronounces it GNU. I don't know. Um, but I, you, you can just call it Octave. The, uh, it's it's very it's like um, it's like learning I, I think it's like learning a language uh, a human language in that you start off with very simple stuff and you build yourself up as you go and you start oh well now I want to do this sort of thing well how do I do that and then you learn how to do that and because it's interactive you uh, it's you don't write a program and then run it typically you sort of do things and it gives you an answer right away so you learn. Um, very quickly, how, how its syntax works, and its syntax is pretty simple, and uh, it's pretty accessible. The biggest problem with Octave right now is it seems to be going through a, a transition period on the Mac. Uh, for quite a while, you could get a pre-compiled version of Octave on the Mac, 
at a, a SourceForge page called Octave Forge, and I don't have the URL for it, but you, you can if you search on Octave Forge, you can find it. And up until the most recent version of Octave, they would give you a pre-compiled version of Octave with lots of extra libraries built in, and it was a wonderful thing. And for some reason, with the most recent version, they haven't done. They're, they're not doing that. I think they're expecting you to use homebrew or something like that from now on, which can work, but it's certainly more complicated for people to you to do that. Uh, no matter what your background is, you know, people who are interested in using Octave, people who are very good at numerical analysis, aren't necessarily good at the kind of nerdy ways of getting all the libraries lined up to, to make something compile properly. They are two, they are, they're similar skill sets, but they're not the same. That's what I was just thinking is what is the overlap? I mean, if you look at those circles for people who are, you know, engineers who can figure out what makes a lawnmower bolt fail and people who can program computers, I mean, it's not necessarily that large. No, no it isn't. And, and there, the people have similar personality traits typically you know we're, we're nitpicky we're pains in the butt about things programmers and engineers but engineers don't necessarily know much about programming and programmers certainly don't necessarily know much about engineering i was i was just thinking if we could get you and john syracuse on a show together i'm pretty it sure would ne- yeah, it would never end yeah the, the universes <laughs> may implode i mean i'm not sure it would be it would be pretty awesome though <laughs> I'm not sure awesome is the right word, but it would be something. In my head, it would be. So that's all that matters. <laughs> so when, uh, recently, I'm sorry, Katie, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to ask, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what exactly, so maybe we can get an idea of the process from start to finish, what exactly is typically involved when you when when you start on a on a case or a project, what are the various steps that you would go? I mean, it would be I would guess that it would start with like an information gathering phase, and then the generation of some kind of report, and then perhaps some kind of presentation to conclude it. Or is that kind of how? And then maybe walk through the tools that you use for each of those steps. I, I think that's kind of what you started to do. But just is is that kind of the cycle that it would go through? So people kind of have an idea of the big picture. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be informed of some problem that someone is hoping uh, that, that we can help them on. And there's, of course, some back and forth of actually getting the job in, in-house. Sure. And, and, you know, but that's everybody has that has that issue. Uh, and then we and then we go into data gathering and data gathering varies tremendously depending on the nature of, of the project. In some cases, the data gathering will be me going to look at, usually, if there's a broken piece of equipment, uh, it'll be me going to look at the broken piece of equipment and measuring it and taking a lot of photographs of it. Photography is a big part of my job. Um, and and then after seeing it, starting to think about, well, how could this have happened? And then the other data, which is less engineery but uh, more lawyerly, is well there are often if this is a failed piece of equipment there were often people running the equipment at the time it failed well what do they say happened so there are interviews with those people possibly depositions possibly just more, less formal interviews with them 
Uh, I ask for the drawings of the equipment, the, the engineering drawings, so that uh, certain parts of the equipment are usually not accessible to me. They're inside, and I, but I still need to know what that's like. Uh, information about the materials that are used, because although I can see, okay, well, this looks like this is made out of aluminum, but I don't know what grade of aluminum it is, you know, things like that. Um, so, there's, so there is, in fact, all of that data gathering, which can, and sometimes I have to run, I run tests, and then I have to um, analyze the test results. So that's part of the data gathering as well. Sometimes other people have run tests, and I look at their reports, or I look at the data that they gathered. Uh, the data gathering phase is um, very diverse because it's, it's very much uh, project dependent. Uh, you know, what kind of equipment is it that I'm looking at? And what's, what's the question that needs to be answered? So the data gathering is diverse, but there's always that phase. And then there's uh, an analysis phase, which kind of goes, uh, merges with the data gathering phase. Uh, sometimes there are um, scientific and engineering principles that one can apply. Well, they're always scientific and engineering principles that one applies, but some of them, sometimes they are in mathematical form. And so you can do analysis to calculate stresses in a structure or calculate velocities of some piece of whirling equipment and how fast would it have been going uh, under these circumstances. What are the pressures in a hydraulic system under uh, when the controls are being operated this way, that sort of thing. And so there's that kind of analysis, and, the, and that's where Octave often comes in to play, where I need to do math. And sometimes it's very simple, and you can just do it with a calculator, but sometimes it's more complicated, and you really want a more powerful thing than a calculator. And GNU Octave is my sort of high-end calculator uh, when I'm at my computer. Now, when you're in the data gathering and the investigative phases, do you have any specific tools that you use for that phase? Mm, I, not really. Um, it's, I, I try to be, I try not to have very many tools for that phase. I, I take notes and I've recently, uh, largely due to some of the things that you folks have been saying, I have recently been, scanning my handwritten notes and putting them into PDFs so that I can find them more easily uh, when I'm at a computer or more important so that I can have them on my laptop when I'm out in the field or somewhere away from my office and, and don't have my file next to my desk. Uh, now are you just and, scanning those into files and folders or are you scanning them into a specific type of system? I am right now just scanning them into files and folders. I am a, because I've been doing computers for, I mean, I started using computers in 1977. So I've been at this a long time. And so the file and folder system is really, is really comfortable to me. And I don't need, I don't feel the need for things like Yojimbo or Evernote. And in fact, I kind of, I don't like the idea of them. Because, not because I don't think that they work, it's because I have this regimented thing of, here is a project, there is a folder for the project. I did five different things on that project. I have a folder for each one of those things. I can find them all. 
Uh, and as long as I'm good about keeping everything in the folder that it belongs, and when you do this for many, many years, you learn that you have to be good at that, um, I, I just feel most comfortable with that. I don't like tagging things. I'd rather just put everything in, a, in the right folder. And so it's that's kind of this uh, pain-in-the-butt engineer way of having there is this strict hierarchical system. Um, and luckily because of the work that I do, which is broken into projects, you know, this is the pro this is the project where that crane fell over. And this is the project where that building fell down. They're all separate from one another. So I don't, uh, having them in separate folders works out perfectly. Um, so can I divert you for one second? What kind of computer were you working on in 1976? In 19, well, uh, well, uh, this is a show in itself. My first, my, I wasn't, I wasn't really working on it. I started in, in, as a freshman in college, taking a programming course in Fortran, which all engineers did at that time. And honestly, I don't even know what the computer was (laughs) because I would sit down at a key punch machine, which for you kiddies out in the audience was a, was a thing that actually punched holes into a manila card that was so, I don't know, about four inches by eight inches. And those cards would go into a stack and you would hand it off to some uh, priest of, of the computer who would come out and gather them and then feed them into the computer and wait for the, the computer to give its results. And then that information would come out on fanfold paper. Usually it would come out telling you that you had a syntax error in your program. And they would then stick that uh, fanfold paper into a bin according to the first letter of your last name. And you would go there and some hours later, typically, and find that you had screwed up your program because you had a card punched wrong, and then you'd have to go back and do it over again. So when I brag that I had to save my first programs onto a cassette tape, I really lose, don't I? Yeah. Yeah. No, we had, yeah, we had, uh, you'd have a little stack of punch cards that you put a rubber band around. And in the early days, you never saw the computer, ever. Yeah. Only very special people got to see the computer itself. And all you saw were the cards and then the fanfold paper that came back. Wow. And there were, there were a set of cards in the front of your stack always that you were given by your teacher uh, that were called the job control cards. And these were more mysterious than any other card because you had to have, they had to, obviously they had to be in the right order and they had to be the right cards. If you ever screwed them up, God help you because you had no idea what they did. Uh, it was only years later that I realized what they were doing was telling the computer, hey, I'm submitting a Fortran job, go in and compile it and then and run it. Um, but the, the, the computer, I assume, that I was first running was um, some, uh, some ancestor of the IBM 360, which was sort of this great, venerable, uh, very successful computer that IBM came out with in the 60s. Yeah. Later on, when I started doing time sharing, I was working on a controlled data Cyber 175 and a Cyber 174, which was, well, oh my God, I got to sit at a terminal, and if I made a mistake in typing, I could actually backspace. I didn't have to pull the card out of the key punch machine and throw it away and start over again. I could backspace. It was unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I had an actual, a, a real text editor, where which allowed you to move the cursor back and forth and edit almost anywhere within a line. 
It was only a line editor, by the way. You couldn't move. Uh, you could only edit one line at a time. No mouse, of course, back in those days. You wonder, because technology advances so quickly. So in your professional career, we have gone from punch cards to what we have now, like the MacBook Air type technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to wonder for kids now if they'll look back at the MacBook Air and go, oh, remember those those cute little MacBook Airs and how crippled they were? You know, I, you just wonder, okay. what will they be using that, to make what we have now look like that? Whatever it is they'll be using, they will look back at what we have now and, and, and think it's funny. Yeah. And they will be telling stories like I have just told you about how, you know, yeah. back in our day, we had to do this so that, you know, we actually had to type that, you know, we didn't have to, we didn't just think and the computers knew what we meant. Yeah. <laughs> things like that. Yep. Okay. So let's, I'm, now that I've distracted you thoroughly, um, you, you, you were talking about um, your site inspections and you were taking pictures. What, what type of photography routine do you use? I, uh, I have a, I just use a Canon G10. I, I used to, well, obviously when I started in this business, I used film and I, and I, um, took all my photos with the uh, SLRs, uh, since moving to digital, uh, and when digital SLRs were way out of range of, uh, price that I wanted to spend, I started using these compact cameras and they're very good. So I, I'm using a Canon G10 right now, which is a couple generations old. And I just take, I, my habits are to try to take as many uh, establishing shots as possible when you're taking a piece. One of the things I've, I have found, let me see if I can come up with an actual sentence here. One of the things that I have found is that people who are not experienced at looking at failures or looking at equipment that has suffered some problem, they always think that they need to take close-up photos. And when I get other people's photos going out who look out at equipment, I can never figure out what they're looking at because all they do is take macro shots. So the first thing I I do is try to go all the way around the piece of equipment, take as many establishing shots as possible. Then I start going in and establishing everything. Uh, I do try, I don't take too many close up photos until the very end when I think I really know what's going on. Uh, this is a problem in my personal life because when I take photos of my kids, my kids are very small in the photo. And my wife keeps telling me, no, get closer. You have to get closer. You're not, we know what the kids are. You know, we know what their feet look like. We want to see their face. Uh, so it's, uh, I have to, it's a very difficult thing for me to do, but I have to put on a, a different hat when I take personal photos. So you don't have to start say, okay, this is a picture of the house the kids were in. Well, that's a picture of the door going into the house. That's, you know, vac- <laughs> our vacation photos are so, sort of like that when I've been taking them. You know, yes, this is the state we're in. And, you know, here's the sign saying what state we're in. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Pretty soon you're going to lose camera privileges, buddy. I well, my sure. wife throws, she throws lots of them away. Yeah. <laughs> as, she, as she should. Yeah, you know, we should probably go on to our second sponsor. Um, and who was that, Katie? Our second sponsor is Fujitsu. And they've got a new scanner on the market that we've been talking a little bit about, and that is the S1300. Have you had a chance to play with this, David? Yes, I like it. I, like I it. tell you, I haven't had much of a chance to play with mine because when mine showed up, uh, I left it sitting on the counter and my mom came over and it walked away. 
And well, so I, I had to set it up wireless. at her house. And she said, I've been meaning to tell you, I want to go paperless. And so you're going to show me how to do that. And she was so excited. So we set up the S1300 at her house. And uh, I think I've got her going to set up her using Evernote. And she's decided that for years and years and years and years, she used to collect, I don't even know how big they are, but if you go into like Office Depot or Staples or one of these office supply stores, you know how they've got these rows of binders that you can buy? Whatever the biggest binder you can buy is, every year at the start of the year, the end of the previous year, my mom would go into Office Depot and she would buy the biggest binder you could buy. And she would write the year on the side of it. And it would sit open on her desk, and she would have a dozen little folders. And when the cable statement came, she would stick it in the folder. And when, you know, one of those um, um, statement of benefits or whatever called from your from your uh, insurance company came, it would go in the folder. And when the utility bill came, it would go in the folder. And then by the end of the year, or even by like the six-month mark, where, you know, halfway through where we are about now, the folder would just be bursting at the seams with all of this paper. And so she'd sometimes you'd get like, you know, 2012 part one, 2012 part two, and then she'd close it and she'd put it like on a shelf somewhere. And we've got all of these, these folders. And it was a pretty good method, but she's just had enough and she's ready to get rid of it because she hardly ever goes back into it. So she took the scan snap. We got it set up on her desk. And what's really great about the S1300 is it is small. It is compact. It's a little bit smaller than the old 1300, the 1300i than they used to have. Um, and it's a lot faster also. It, it scans a lot faster than the old machines. They've really given this quite a, a bit of a hardware boost. And it is designed to scan directly to the cloud. So you can scan to Dropbox, you can scan to Evernote, you can scan to your iOS device. I've got her hooked up to going into Evernote. And we set her up an Evernote notebook for the cable bill, an Evernote notebook for you know all of those little things that she used to have folders for. We set her up an Evernote notebook for. And she just thinks it's the coolest thing. And it, so she's working out for her. She's able to adopt this new paperless uh, workflow. Yeah, she's she's running a dual system right now because she's a little nervous about it. But I said, okay, well, 2013, we're going to go all paperless. Yeah. You can run your dual system for 2012 because we're about halfway through. But once once we give this about six months for you to decide that it's going to work okay... There's going to be no, you're not going to be buying a 2013 notebook. This is it. Yeah. Well, I think the S1300i is really a nice upgrade over the S1300 that existed before it. Um, like you said, it is faster. It also is very internet friendly. And uh, Dropbox, Evernote, Google Docs, Salesforce, SugarSync, I, um, iPhone, Android. So you can send stuff just about anywhere using this new scanner. And it does fit in a drawer if you have limited desk space and you don't want to take up a footprint of having the the S1500. It's really a great device. And we're giving one away. We are giving one away. So what you have to do is you have to send us a haiku. So send us a haiku. It can either be an ode to like ScanSnap or an ode to going paperless or mix it up somewhere in there and send that to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. With the words scan snap haiku, that's two words in the subject, and that will get filtered. We've got some great uh, responses so far. And uh, next month in August, early August, we will announce the winner. Yeah, and we've got some great entries, so so you got to bring it. Step it up. Yeah. 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 So the uh, the first prize winner gets the uh, S1300i. And the second prize winner is going to get a uh, year long subscription to Evernote Premium. 
And uh, we want to thank uh, ScanSnap for providing those excellent prizes. And I, I, we're going to read some of the, the haiku responses on the show. I can't, can't wait to share those with you. And uh, I'll keep you updated. I'll let you know how my mom's paperless project goes. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that. Yeah. I just thought it was so funny. She picked it right up off the counter and walked out the door with it. There's a good book on that paperless stuff. I, I heard there was a book that she might be interested in buying. I've gifted it to her. Yeah, the, the author I heard is a jerk, but otherwise it's a good book. Yeah, well, I wasn't going to say anything. Okay. Hey, Mark, let's, uh, let's yes. talk a little bit more about what happens after you've got all the research done and you've, you've worked in New Plot and New Octave. Uh, what next? Then, well, then I, I start, I think, and I'm, presumably I've been thinking all along about what happened, why did it happen, what, what are the possible ways that things could happen. Other parts of the data gathering phase also involves going, using the library yeah. and you know, the Internet to find out research on things. But basically then I just start, I think, and you know, what, why do I think this failure happened or this whatever behavior it is that I'm investigating? And that's kind of a mysterious process. I don't really know how it works. Um, certainly one's education comes into it a lot and one's experience. Well, what have you seen before? What have your colleagues seen before as you discuss the project with them? And, uh, but eventually you come up, you think you come up with an answer. One of the things about this job is you're not always sure that you're going to come up with an answer and your clients have to know that ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, there it, are, there are no guarantees. It's engineering and science. It's an exploration. You don't know whether you'll find the answer sometimes. And, and in particular, when I have uh, clients who are attorneys who not only want an answer, but want a particular answer. Yeah, they don't want just a answer. They want the answer. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, they know that they will get the, they will get the answer from me, but it's not necessarily the answer that they want. Yes. And so, uh, quite often, I have to give them some bad news, and they pay their bill and tell me goodbye. And quite often, then they go off looking for another engineer who will find them a different answer. Yeah. Um, but with respect to that, you know, you at some point you are going to be sharing this information, and I would imagine you do some demonstrative evidence or diagrams and things like that. How do you go about pulling that off? I uh, well, usually it's already in my report. I almost always nowadays write a report to go along with the work, especially if it looks like. Well, it's always been the case that projects for industrial clients need a report because they want to have something that goes along with the purchase order that they used to that they're going to uh, use to pay me with. So they, they want something tangible. Uh, that's the deliverable is the term of art. And it's, and it's a report. That will have charts and graphs and photographs and sketches and things like that in it. Uh, insurance companies work the same way. They always want a report. So, so what tools do you use to make those? Yeah, are you using I, pages or numbers or graphs or are those all proprietary? I use TextMate. I write everything in TextMate. Whether it's a program or it's English text, I use TextMate. I really don't use anything else. The only other word processor-like thing I use uh, to write in is mail, basically. Everything else that I do is in TextMate, and I just find it so much easier 
to know one thing and, and know it well and just stick with it. Even if it's not necessarily the best tool for certain operations, it ends up being the best tool for me because I know it so well. And uh, I am being uh, enticed by sublime text right now. Uh, but I'm holding off. I'm, I'm still hoping that I can stay with TextMate. That does seem to be the flavor of the month. It's re- you know, I have tried, I probably, we're going to go off on the side here. I have tried because of the TextMate problem, the fact that, you know, TextMate 2 is going to be leopard only. Gee, isn't that wonderful? Um, you know, we've been waiting for that for five, six years. I don't know how long we've been waiting for TextMate 2. Obviously, there are other text editors out there, and should I give them a try? Yes, I certainly should. I've never liked any of them. Usually within a few minutes of trying them, I see, no, nah, I don't like this. No, I don't like this. Um, Sublime Text I played with for a couple of days, and I was really amazed at how well it fit in with the way I work. It is very much like TextMate in many ways, and... I have a sense that I'm going to be heading in that direction. Yeah, you've just got to find a, a gap between two projects so you can really kind of absorb it while you're not it, taking bullets. Exactly, exactly. And you know, and that's going to that would happen even if I went on to TextMate two. Yeah, uh, because TextMate two is different enough. I've played with the alpha a little bit. It's different enough from TextMate one that it's not going to be a perfectly smooth transition uh, going from one to the other. So I'm I'm very seriously considering, uh, you know, moving. If I'm going to move, and I'm going to have this disruption in my in my life, um, and it is it's terrible to think that your text editor is considered an important part of your life, but it is. Um, maybe I should just go with Sublime Text instead of TextMate Two. I haven't made the decision, and I'm still sticking with TextMate One for right now. But anyway, so I use that, and I have this bizarre workflow that I have set up that involves multi markdown an extremely old version of multi-markdown that I uh, hacked up so that Fletcher would not even recognize it anymore, and a variety of other small tools that I use for um, creating the charts and the graphs and the drawings that I include uh, in my reports. So for for most uh, most of the graphical work that I do, is done in either GNU Plot, which is just a plotting program. Uh, very, uh, it's a very text-based plotting program. It's not interactive. You give it commands, and it plots things for you according to the commands that you type in. It's very old-fashioned in that way, but it's extremely powerful, and it's able to handle really large data sets, which is something that, for example, numbers absolutely cannot do. Yeah, you know, we uh, talked about that a little bit on our phone call, yeah. and it's it's interesting because see, numbers for me is perfect because I don't have large data sets, but I want things to look very pretty because eventually it's going to be in a keynote somewhere, usually, mm-hmm. or embedded in a brief, and it's perfect for that, but I totally get that. I know that you couldn't build a spreadsheet to do a hostile takeover of IBM in numbers. Yeah, you know, I use numbers for my uh, for submitting my expense reports. And my expense reports are really nice looking because of numbers. They're better looking than they would be if I were writing them in Excel, for example. 
just be, just because, even though I'm, I'm using it basically as a spreadsheet, but just because you get to use multiple spreadsheets on a page, multiple tables on a page, it's really nice for that. And it's really good for making things that look nice if they're not too complicated. But, um, you know, this past week I was at a lab, uh, somebody else's lab, doing, uh, doing some testing, and we had we were checking temperatures at various locations in a piece of equipment. So I had uh, 10 thermocouples set up in this piece of equipment, and we were gathering temperatures every 10 seconds on all 10 thermocouples, and that was going on for a total of about three hours. So I think if you add all that up, I have 100,000 data points that need to be plotted. Numbers can't do that. Yeah, I'm not sure you'd want to try that in numbers. Yeah, it, just, it, just, it just can't. And even though it, it could hold 100,000 data points, I'm sure, if you tried to plot with it, it would look awful. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of cartoony, in, from my point of view. It's kind of cartoony in how it does things. It looks very nice, again, if you're, using, if you're plotting five or six things. But you just can't handle 100,000. The new plot handles 100,000, no problem. And can slice it and dice it and show it to you in any, any way that you want because it is a program that has evolved over the years to meet the needs of scientists in particular who are working with large data sets and need to plot things in many different ways. So it, it is a, it is not an easy tool to learn how to use, but once you have learned how to use it, 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 you can make it sing and you can make some very nice looking plots with it. And, uh, you know, just on that subject, I know you've written in the past how you're against these stack charts. Uh, yes. Tell your case <laughs> for that real quickly. Cause I, I think it's interesting. I never use stack charts, but I see, a, I see them much more often these days. Stacked area charts are, a problem if you are plotting the time history of more than three things. Okay, in a stacked area chart, you usually have um, several categories of things, and you're plotting some value. Sometimes it adds. Often it, it's uh, it would be something like market share or or something that adds up to a hundred percent. And so you are plotting these, and so the the vertical distance between the lines that's that uh, the boundaries that separate the, the the areas represent say market share at that particular point in time the problem with stacked area charts is that when we're looking at the distance between two lines that are not necessarily parallel to one another we tend but are close to parallel to one another we tend to look not at the vertical distance between them, but rather at the distance that's perpendicular to one another. So if you were looking at a river, for example, that's heading off to the northeast, if you're looking, oh, how wide is the river? Well, it's not the distance from south to north. It's the distance from southeast to northwest. It's going straight across the river. That's, yeah. how, that's how we perceive things. But the way it's actually plotted in a stacked area chart is that it's the it's the north to south it's the up to down distance that's different and when you have uh, things that are changing rapidly high slope uh, number uh, changes in your chart you get fooled 
things that look, two lines that look very close to one another actually can have a very large vertical distance between one another. Yeah. It's because the line, the two lines are both going almost vertically. So the middle data set gets kind of hosed from the perception of the reader. Yeah, you think it's tiny and it's not tiny. And that's why I don't like him. I am supported by Eddie Smith on this as well. Yeah, he was another really, you know, smart numbers guy. Really smart numbers guy and and is used to dealing with huge data sets as well as an actuary. Yeah. Um, And then you also said you use OmniGraffle for some of this work. I use OmniGraffle actually to draw... to draw sketches of equipment. If I have to make a simplified drawing of a piece of equipment, I will usually use OmniGraffle, even though it isn't really meant to do that. It has just enough tools for me to do that. And again, it's one of these things where I know it pretty well, and rather than trying to learn another program just from making these kinds of sketches, I'd rather just deal with the the few inefficiencies that are associated with drawing in OmniGraffle uh, in order to not have to learn another program. Yeah, I do the same because thing. It's, it's interesting. What I do sometimes is when I've got a, a something I want to put in a statement or a, as part of a presentation, if it's a real-world thing, I'll take a picture of it, like a floor plan or even a, an object, and put it as a background layer in OmniGraffle and draw the outline on top of it. And then... Re- oh, and then remove the picture at the end, and you have a very nice diagram, clean. I I have done that many times. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a it's a really good way to to work. Yeah, you just lock that uh, your photograph down. I I've done that with scanned um, engineering drawings. Yeah, where it's in it's it's so pixelated the scan is that I really don't want to put that in my report, and I also want to combine in this drawing of a, of a device with something else. So I'll I'll put the scanned. Uh, engineering drawing in, I'll trace it, trace around it, throw away the, the scan of the engineering drawing and, and deal with my tracing from that point on. Yeah. It's, it's a smart way to, to get those things done. And they're very accurate at that point. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's accurate enough. Well, it's, I always, I still say it's not quite to scale, but it's, yeah. it's darn close in those cases. Engineers are very anally retentive. In my world, it's accurate enough. <laughs> yes, but, but in yours, course. probably not. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Um, well, and interestingly, it's it's people like you questioning me about the accuracy yeah, no, that no, makes me that no. makes me say that I ha- it's it's not to scale. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Somebody uh, like me. What I really like about OmniGraffle, though, is is its uh, way of structuring a document where you can tie two objects together, and because I often have to use photographs of of a device, and then I have to explain. What I'm seeing uh, that's right, wrong, or, or just explaining the, the various parts of the device to a client. And so I annotate these photographs using OmniGraffle. I take the photograph, as you do, I stick it in as a, a, a background, as an object in OmniGraffle. I lock it so that I don't keep grabbing it when I'm drawing over the top of it. And then I will start making. Um, Annotations with arrows pointing to the various things. And what's great about OmniGraffle as that kind of tool is that I can keep moving my annotations around until I get what I want. I often have four or five, half dozen annotations on a drawing. Getting them 
you know, on a photograph rather, getting them in the right place, not interfering with one another and not interfering with something else that I want to show in the photograph is very difficult. And I never get it right the first time. Being able to move things around and have the tip of the arrow always continue to point where it belongs because you've, it's, it's locked in place. And then all I have to do is move the annotation that says, you know, this is the flywheel. Yeah, the, and then, the magnetic. Uh... Yeah, the magnetic part of it is just spectacular. And just, it makes things go, I mean, can I do that? Could I do that in another program? Of course I could, but it's, it's more of a pain to do it in another program. OmniGraph was perfect for that. It's not something, I don't think they sell it for that reason, but um, as soon as I learned that OmniGraph did that, I bought it and I have never looked back. OmniGraph is not a sponsor here. I'm sorry to say, but it's, it's, it's a, it's wonderful for that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. They do sponsor the show, not not this particular well, good. episode, though. Yeah, good. Yeah, so that's that's probably actually a good point for us to bring in our our third sponsor for this show. If this is a good point to take a break, uh, and we'll talk about Gazelle. You know, David, I know you and I have both gotten new machines lately, and based on the amount of email that we've gotten, there are a lot of people out there who are thinking about upgrading, whether it's upgrading to the new iPad or thinking about that new iPhone that's coming out at some point in the future or taking a hard look at the new MacBook Airs and the new Retina MacBook Pros that have just come out and are looking maybe to cash in and get a little bit of cash for their old gadgets and offset some of the cost of those those shiny new devices. And Gazelle is a great way to do that. Uh, you can go to gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com, uh, and then type in the name of the product that you want. Tell them a little bit about it, what type of condition it is in, do you have all the accessories, uh, and they'll give you an offer for it. You can lock in that offer for 30 days, and if you decide you want to ship your item off to Gazelle, they'll pay for the shipping, they'll even send you a box if you need it, and then they'll send you a check. You can either get paid by PayPal, or if you choose an Amazon gift card, they'll send you 5% more. And it's a safe and easy way uh, to get cash for some of your old gear and help offset the cost of buying some new gear and not have to worry about all of this eBay garbage and all of this, you know, some of the selling on Craigslist can be scary and having to worry about meeting people and having people come into your home and all of that other crazy stuff. So uh, Gazelle just takes a lot of the hassle and a lot of the unknown and uncertainty off out of that process. You know, when my wife just got the new iPhone because uh, she needed a, a new phone. And so we got her that, which, you know, in my family, there's four of us. So everything cycles down. And at the bottom of the chain, one of my daughters had the 3GS. And now we had this extra 3GS. We're not going to keep it. You know, I'm going to sell it. And sent it to Gazelle. Uh, it's $90 for this phone that we've had in the house for three years. And hmm. is in good shape. Uh, we got an extra 5% because we got an Amazon gift card for it. And, you know, that's $90 in my pocket rather than just having it sit in a drawer. Yeah. I, I don't believe in keeping all your old, you know, Apple gear. And Gazelle buys just about anything that's got an Apple logo on it. I mean, why not turn it back into cash uh, and just wait? You know, if you've got, you know, family you can recycle stuff to, that's one thing. But if you've got something sitting in a drawer, you should sell it. And Gazelle is the way to go. That's the only way I sell this stuff anymore. I've sworn off Craigslist and all the, you know, eBay and all the other things that involve crazy people. Instead, <laughs> you know, Gazelle just sends me a box. I put it in there. You can say whether it's broken. Even if you've got a phone that's been dumped in the pool and has got a cracked glass, they'll give you something for it. And why not get something for it? Uh, it's a great service. 
company's been around a long time, uh, very trustworthy, and, and they pay. What more can you say? So uh, check out gazelle.com. If you follow the link from our website, that will at least tell them that we sent you and drop them a line and tell them that Mac Power users sent you. And we appreciate their support of the show. So Mark, tell us a little bit about how your workflow and how your process has changed with, you know, we've been talking about all these iOS devices about now that you've got these iOS devices in your life. Have, have you been incorporating those into your work at all? Only very little. Um, uh, first, I don't have an iPad. Uh, I only have a uh, an iPhone, which I've had. I had an iPhone one. Now I have an iPhone four. And uh, about the only thing that that I use, I mean, obviously, it's you know, there's my phone. I can text with it. I can send email with it. That those normal parts of my of anybody's work life. Uh, the iPhone is a, apart from those things. The iPhone is more part of my personal life. I would say uh, with looking at Twitter and looking at RSS feeds and even looking at Facebook. My God, I've done, I've gotten on Facebook recently. I don't know why. Um, but one thing that I have done that is kind of interesting, and it's interesting to me anyway, is I've been taking a photo or maybe a couple of photos when I've been out on inspections with my iPhone. Let me guess. Uh, let me guess. GPS. Yes, GPS. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely, because my old G10 doesn't have a GPS in it because it's a real camera, but the iPhone does. And what I did was wrote uh, – so now so I'll have you know 100 photographs taken with my G10, which are all important to me. And I kind of want the GPS data that I could get in my iPhone photo into the, the photos that were taken with the Canon G10. I wrote a script that does that. Uh, so now I have this really interesting workflow when I come back from an inspection and I take my one photo that I took with my iPhone and I put it in a, fo- in a folder and I have all my other photos, all my G10 photos that are also in the folder. And I type, type this thing in and I tell my script, uh, take the GPS data out of uh, the iPhone photo and stick it into all the other photos. And it runs and it works and it's wonderful. And from that point on, I don't have to worry about – it takes all of the uh, by-hand stuff out of it. I mean, you could do that, I guess, in iPhoto. You could uh, – Yeah, you can definitely do it in Aperture, and it's pretty automated there. Yeah. Um, but – It's – it's, and I, I don't use Aperture or iPhoto. Uh, every time I've used iPhoto, I have felt unhappy with it. So I've sworn, again, never to use it again. And uh, so I just have my photos organized uh, in folders. Again, my professional photos have this regimented, you know, Teutonic organizations uh, system where everything is in, everything having to do with a project is in one folder. Inside that folder is a folder called Photos. Inside the Photos folder is a photo with the date on which I took the photos, and then inside that are all the photos I took on that date. And that now all, every, one of the, every one of those photos is tagged with the GPS information um, of where I took it. There's so a, if anybody has been on the show listening this long, then they don't mind that I'm asking this question, <laughs> right? How do you name the files? I name the files. Of course I have a system for naming the files. Um, I named the files using a program that I wrote 
back in the 90s called Canonize, and which I thought was a very clever name because I was using a Canon photo at the time, and I'm giving it a canonical name. It is, it's named, uh, the photos are named basically with the date. Uh, it gives me the date. It goes year, month, day. So four digits for the year, two digits for the month, two digits for the day. Then usually my initials after that, and then after that the frame number of the day. So if it's the first photo of the day, it's 001, second photo 002, and so on. And then finally, of course, .jpg. And is that part of the same script that applies the GPS data or separate? It, it is not. It's a separate script because, you know, that's a good idea. I should put those together. Um, it's a separate script because the, the canonized uh, script was written in the late 90s. No, no. It would have been written early. Two th- it would have been written in 2000. And this GPS one was only written since I got my iPhone 4. You know. I think we should talk a little bit about your scripts and what languages you use and you know what the pluses and minuses are for these things. If someone's listening at home and wants to kind of get into this stuff, I think it's kind of just getting started with scripting can be really daunting because you don't even know where what you guys are talking about. You know, I mean, you and Brett Terpstra and some of the guys that do the, some of the best work on this stuff. Because um, I know you use AppleScript, you use Python. What else do you yep. use to do all this? Mostly it's those two right now. I mean, I have, let me indulge me for a second here, uh, as if you haven't already. I, my first programming language was Fortran. It was back in 1977 or 78 when I learned Fortran as a freshman in college, like all engineers did. As a senior, I took Pascal. Uh, in graduate school, I learned how to program in basic. Then I learned fourth. I then I, I scripted in HyperTalk back in the HyperCard days. Those were wonderful days. Uh, HyperTalk was a wonderful language, and HyperCard was a great program. And, and if it existed today, I would have no hesitation telling people that that's what you should start scripting in because it was just a wonderful environment. Well, just don't hold your breath there. It, well, it's never coming back, and, and, and I don't think it's worth – there are HyperCard workalikes – and I, I don't recommend them. I haven't used them, uh, but I, I just think that's basically dead, and it's time to move on, even though many of us feel very sad about HyperCard's loss. Um, I programmed, when, when the web got started, and when I started doing things on the web and writing CGI scripts, I programmed in Perl, and I programmed in Perl for years, uh, Perl was the programming language of CGI scripts, and it did so many things, and it was so fun to program in. It's bizarre idiosyncrasies uh, just became delightful to me. If you program in Perl for a long time, the things that other people think of as line noise and, and terrible, frightening things are your best friends. You just you love them. They're just they're darling to you. Um, and the and the contrast is AppleScript has the same sorts of idiosyncrasies, and I've never heard anyone describe them that way. Nobody likes AppleScript. There's not a single person on this earth who likes AppleScript. People love what AppleScript can do for them, which is tie together these things that full blown programs written by actual professional programmers 
you be, you're able to take things like FileMaker and iTunes and somehow they, you know, they're completely separate programs, but by using AppleScript, you can stick things from one into another and it's, it's wonderful that way. But God, it's miserable programming in. It's, some of it is not AppleScript's fault itself. Some of it has to do purely with the fact that when a programmer like, when a program like iTunes exposes some of its functionality to AppleScript, it decides what the, uh, what the language is. It, it de- not the language, but the terminology. It decides what syntax works with it. And so iTunes chooses its own syntax, and FileMaker chooses its own syntax, and Pages has its own. I don't even know if Pages is AppleScriptable, but you know what I mean. BBEdit has its own. Um, Safari has its own. And they're not, they're close to one another, but they're not the same. And so pulling off uh, the current page in Safari and you would think should be very much like grabbing the name of the current track in iTunes. And it's kind of the same, but you know, if, if you think you know what it means, if you, if you're really good at Apple scripting iTunes and then you start Apple scripting Safari, you're going to find that you, you screw up every once in a while and you're not going to know why. And then you're going to have to pull up, open the, uh, the library dictionary. The dic- dictionary, sorry, the dictionary yeah. for it. And that's another thing I hate about AppleScript is that they decided to use their own terminology for everything. Um, every other programming language calls it a library. No, no, no. This is AppleScript has to call it a dictionary. Um, it's, it's just so painful uh, to deal with. And uh, there's just no getting around it. And the reason there's no getting around it is because it is just so damn useful. Yeah. to be able to grab that information out of other programs and use it. I always tell people it's not a, a programming language to create a program. It's a programming language that's essentially glue that lets you to take specific features out of different applications and stack them together. That is exactly what it, what it is. And, you know, there, there is an older language that was always supposed to be a glue language, and that was TCL, uh, called Tool Control, Tool Control Language, which was a more of a Unix thing. And I hated programming in TCL, too. Uh, possibly not for the same reasons. But the syntax, again, I just, I hate it. AppleScript is, um, on the good side of AppleScript, is that you can almost always figure out what a program does by reading it. Uh, it's a very readable language. It's just not writable. There are, always, there are always so many different ways to say the same thing. It's like, it is like English. Uh, that's one of its supposed selling points, although people who program a lot know that English-like is not a good selling point. Yeah, because it's not too, accurate enough. It's too, Yeah, it's just, it's, it's got to, but that, it's, you can understand it, uh, just as you can understand me speaking now, even though I'm, you know, stumbling along here and using words incorrectly, you understand what I'm saying because you have experience in English. Uh, AppleScript is very much the same way. It's, because it's English-like, you can read it along and you can figure out pretty much what the person who wrote it did, but the person who wrote it was tearing his hair out trying to get that trying to get that syntax right. And I know some people do some scripting work in like Ruby. Um, have you ever played with any of that stuff? Ruby, I nearly went with Ruby when I was looking around for a language to go to after Perl, and I kind of made a decision I was going to be leaving Perl uh, around the time that Perl six was 
trying to come out and clearly wasn't going to come out. And there was a lot of stumbling around. And also I wrote a post about this. People in the Pearl community were starting to piss me off about how they wanted me to write in Pearl. Um, I was looking for another language and I went with Python rather than Ruby, although they were both uh, candidates and I would be happy to learn Ruby. It's just right now I'm into Python. I think they're, they are very similar. And despite, uh, you know, Brett Terpster writes mostly in Ruby and Ruby programmers and Python programmers like to make jokes at, at each other's expense. They're very similar though. And I would, I'd be happy to write in Python or Ruby rather instead of Python. I just happened to choose Python uh, back several years ago. And that's what I've stuck with. You know, I had somebody send me an email just today saying I was playing around with something I found online. I, I think it was one of my Hazel scripts or Hazel rules where I'd use an Apple script to embed to have Hazel do something via Apple script. And they wanted to format it and tweak it and redo something with it. But they said, but I, I have no idea how to get started with Apple script. I've tried fumbling <laughs> around. What for, for someone who's doesn't have a programming background, doesn't have a degree in computer science, but wants to maybe get started with some of these programming languages. I get this question all the time. Where do they start? Do you have any suggestions for that? If, if you're starting in AppleScript, because I think AppleScript stands apart from every other language just because of its weird syntax. And if you want to get started in it, I would say, I hate to say this, but I, I think Sal Segoian's book might be a good place if you are not a programmer already and you want to learn AppleScript, that might be the best book to get. It's a massively thick book. It moves very, very slowly to someone who is already a programmer. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't answer the questions that a person who's already a programmer asks. But I think that it would be very good for a non-programmer to start with. And I think that's exactly who that book was written for. I think it yeah. was. And the, the problem, the reason I have it uh, is because there are so few books about AppleScript written, or at least I thought that was the case. And so many people thought, thought well of it. And, and I suppose rightly so for that audience that I got it and it just, it didn't, it didn't work for me. You know, um, Matt Newberg has a book. Uh, it's, it's an O'Reilly book. Call I can't remember. It's a definitive Apple script or whatever it's called. It's in the second edition now. I have the first edition. And um, then uh, Hamish Sanderson and, oh, who's the other guy? Hannon Rosenthal, I think, is the co-author, have written a gigantic Apple script book for A-Press, which right now, that's, the, that's my go-to Apple script book. Hamish Anderson, you said? Hamish Sanderson. Oh, Sanderson. Yeah. Yes. He, he's the guy who wrote, I'm sorry, he's the guy who wrote a Python and Python and Ruby libraries that, are, that go under the collective name of AppScript, which allow you, they are essentially a translation of AppleScript rules, or no, AppleScript uh, commands into Python and Ruby. And they allowed you to uh, write essentially apple script in a good language um you still had to deal with the, the difficulties of every every program has its own library 
But there were some wonderful things about AppScript. Hamish now says don't use it because Apple has changed the way AppleScript works. And there's this uh, there's a massive discussion between him and Matt Newberg in a post on my blog where I innocently wrote about a 500-word post and about AppScript and AppleScript. And uh, those two got into the comments, and the comments are now seven to 8,000 words long about about the the problems with scripting on uh, on Macintoshes nowadays. Yeah, you know, two points there. Number one is your blog is like one of the places where comments make a ton of sense to me because you get such smart people writing. Uh, whereas when I was having comments on Max Sparky, I had a lot of Russian porn ads. <laughs> well, you, you have a, you have a bigger audience than uh, me. I have a very I have I have a very as they said with in in terms of Spinal Tap, my audience is very selective. Well, some people would consider that a bonus. <laughs> yeah. It works out well because I usually don't have to worry about shutting down comments. Uh, But the second point I want to make is, you know, that is a really good point is I'm tempted to tell people don't learn Apple script at this point. I mean, uh, you can learn it because it's so English like and because it's unlike anything else. Um, You can reverse engineer Apple script pretty easily. And a lot of times you can even go to developers of the software you're working with and saying, you know, how exactly do I make this work? Because it's, it's just so obtuse and they will help you out. I mean, you can glue stuff together with Apple script with, with even just getting through the Sal Segoyan book. Um, yes. But I think if you really want to learn scripting, I think you really need to pick Ruby or Perl or Python, I guess maybe. Yeah. I, yeah. If you want to learn scripting in general, I would choose, I would probably choose Python not just because that's what I'm using, because I'm I'm happy to program in any language. Frankly, it, it, it's mo- it's a matter of personal taste and what the libraries are. I mean, that those are the big things. I program. I'm still programming in Perl occasionally, if there's a library that's better than the library in Python. And uh, I will program in Ruby if I have to, if I find that there's a library that does what I want better than the equivalent library in Python. What makes Python, I'll make the pitch for Python now though, uh, what makes Python good I think for early beginning programmers is that the syntax is extremely clear. Um, the things that some programmers dislike, the one thing that some things some programmers dislike about Python is uh, the fact that white space can be significant, that you actually have to indent certain parts of the code, is something that I think is wonderful for beginners because uh, you're told in any uh, computer programming language, if you're taking a a programming course in C, your instructor will tell you to indent the code underneath your loops or within your loops or indent the the code that's that's in an if-then statement. Well, Python just takes that suggestion and makes it a requirement. And by doing that, uh, it doesn't. It leaves out things like curly braces. You don't need that anymore. You use the indentation, so it becomes very easy to read, and it becomes very easy to write. You don't have these extra characters that are kind of noise um, cluttering up the program. So it's not English-like by any means. Uh, it is it's very much a programming language. It's very structured. It's very um, logical. But it doesn't have the kind of noise characters like braces uh, that other languages have. 
So I think it's very good for that reason. It also has um, directly an interactive mode, which Perl doesn't have. Ruby does, though. Um, so you can learn from your mistakes immediately. You can construct a program sort of on the fly, learn things as you go, and get the mistakes out of, out of the way right away. If you wanted to learn, and what book would you recommend for that, or what resources would you send someone to? I wouldn't even, yeah, I wouldn't even go to a book. Uh, I would take the Python tutorial, which is available for free as a PDF at python.org. If you go to python.org and go to the documentation section, there's a thing called, I don't know if it's called Learning Python. That's actually a book from O'Reilly, which is pretty good too. Uh, but it's it's uh, written by uh, Guido Van Rossum, this tutorial, and it covers lots of different things, probably more than a beginner really wants. So just skip over the parts that you don't understand that have to do with object-oriented programming. Yeah, they, uh, even, they even have, I'm looking at a beginner's guide right there. Oh, is that right? It's been a long, it's been so long since I've looked there, but is is it by Guido or is it? uh, Uh, It doesn't have an author attribution, but it's pretty big. Yeah. uh, Guido's tutorial is really, really good. The other thing might be very good too. Guido's tutorial is very good. In fact, Python's documentation in general is, I find very good. And one of the other nice things about Python is uh, it's what they call batteries included, that lots and lots of libraries come with a standard distribution of Python. And so if you're using Python on machine A and you use a particular library, you can be pretty sure if it's in the standard library, it'll be on, that same library will be on machine B. That's not necessarily true with Perl, for example. And uh, I don't really know with, with Ruby. I don't have enough experience to say one way or the other. I wish I had more time. Just to learn all this? Yeah. Yeah, one of the nice things about my job is that I have to do programming of, of a numerical nature. And so it becomes natural to, to turn to programming when I'm doing office work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just because I'm used to doing, I'm used to thinking that way and used to doing things that way. You know, one other thing, I'm going to move off the programming subject. Um, you talked about um, as a final step you take, and this is something that I've been meaning to talk about on this show for years, is PDF size and how you deal with it. Um, yeah. When you start building these large PDF files, because that is becoming, you know, the standard file format for digital documents. I think a lot of people don't realize how big those files can get and how easy it could be to to make them a little smaller, especially if you're sharing them around with a lot of people. Yeah, I um, it's a particular problem with the with the reports that I write because I put so many photographs in my report, and my camera takes photos that are natively six to eight megabytes each, and I usually have. Um, a dozen to two dozen photographs in my reports. Uh, last Thursday, I sent out a report that was, I think, 15 pages long. 13 pages of it were photographs. I only had two pages of text. Um, the photograph, the, the uh, PDFs that get generated uh, when they have these photos embedded in it are massive. 
uh, that one was in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 megabytes, uh, that one PDF report. And, of course, I want to send that, uh, email it to my client. I can't, I can't email a 66 megabyte file to my client. And the client doesn't care about having, at least in this case, the client doesn't care about having the full resolution photograph in his report, his copy of the report. He wants to be able to maybe print it out or maybe just look at it on his screen and see what I'm talking about and say, oh, okay, I understand. So you, what I do is, and I wrote a po- I've written a couple of posts about this, but the most recent one was uh, back in May, I think. I, re- I redid it for Lion. Um, is I use ColorSync, which is a standard Apple program, uh, and you can make what are uh, you can make PDF filters out of it. And one of the things that you can do within ColorSync is um, take images within your PDF and downsample them. And I ha- and it's I'll send you the link uh, to it. It's very straightforward. I think between one post and another, any, anyone could figure this out. But I basically downsample them, and I have I have three color sync filters now that I use commonly. One takes all the images and turns them into 300 DPI images. One takes them and turns them into 200 DPI images, and the other one takes them and turns them into 150 DPI images. I can take a by applying one of these, and I'm I'm sort of moving toward using the 200 uh, filter now, the 200 DPI filter. By applying this filter to a PDF file through an automator action, uh, I can reduce the size of that PDF from, say, 80 megabytes to about one and a half megabytes. And at 100% viewing size, and certainly on a piece of paper that's printed out, they look exactly the same. It's only when you start zooming way, way in that you would notice a difference. And none of my clients zoom way, way, way in. And if they want to zoom in, I'll send them the JPEG separately. So this has been uh, a huge savings for me. I mean, there were times before I hit upon this, I was doing things like um, downsampling my photographs before embedding them in the PDF. I had to keep doing it again and again. I had to do that downsampling 15 times, let's say, for 15 photographs. I'd open it up in preview, and then I'd say, oh, okay, I want to change the resolution of this photograph, this thing from, you know, 4,400 4, by 3,200 to whatever. Would you, know? you like me to send you an automator service? Because I, I would just love the fact that you use something I built. <laughs> Do you, well, I, I have it as an automator service. My, my own is an automator service. What are you using? How are you doing it? For, for resizing photos like that? Oh, oh, oh uh, at once? Yeah, just... It, Load up the folder, select them all, right-click, and press service. I, uh, yes, I would like to use that because I can use that other, other ways. I've kind, I've kind of used um, – what have I used? Oh, I've used SIPS, yeah. S-I-P-S. Yeah. And I kind of do that uh, on the fly from the command line because I'm, I'm – That's how you roll. Because that's how I roll, yes. <laughs> Mark, and that is your theoretical name. We that's all know that your real name, name is Stephanie, but we're going to leave it at Mark. <laughs> Uh, you know, I am so pleased that you agreed to come on the show. I wasn't sure if you would with this, uh, you know, oh, with this snowman level. thing. Yeah, 
And I, and more importantly, I feel much more comfortable looking at the snowman. He doesn't scare me as much now. Well, I'm glad because he's, he's really cute. I mean, if if you, if you look at him all the time anyway, Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and I've been wanting to hear how you do all this stuff and as well as the backstory and Dr. Drang. And I also just wanted to publicly thank you. I get so much joy out of the stuff you write on the internet. It's, you know, the more I get, the more I do this internet stuff, the more I realize it's guys like you and Eddie Smith and Mac Drifter that just really make this all work for me. I just love the, the, the smart posts you guys put up. Well, it's nice to be put in that, in that category of people because there are, there are so many, exactly as you said, there are so many people out there who are helpful they're not specifically, you know, I have a problem and then, you know, here's how, you're fi- how you fix it. Just by putting out their own experiences and their own ideas on how to do things, even if it's not something that you yourself do, it often sparks an idea in your own head on how to do something and make your life more comfortable. Uh, that's the thing I, to me, that's the, that's the thing about computers is it's the device that can become another device. And that's why I do so much scripting is because I... It, it, by doing that, I can turn it into my machine. It's not yeah. Apple's machine anymore. It's mine. Yeah. It works the way I want it to. Which is a little scary right now. Well, especially if you look at the snowman, yeah. Yeah. I just mean the way the, the way oh, that, they're, that, they're, that they're taking it away from you? Yeah. Uh, maybe. I mean, one thing I will say um, is that no matter what Apple does, I, I think, no matter what Apple does with AppleScript, and a lot of Apple scripters are are essentially giving up on on the language. They're they're thinking that it's going to die, and it's time to think about other things. Um, I don't think Apple is able to get get rid of scripting in the other languages like Perl, Python, and Ruby because that's it's an important part of a lot of their underlying uh, infrastructure. Are are programs written in those languages? And, and uh, frankly, and, and it's just a, it's just a natural Unix thing. You really can't get rid of that. I don't know why they would. I mean, there's, it doesn't really serve them any purpose. I could I could almost make the case for getting rid of AppleScript that it requires their support and yes, resources exactly. to to maintain. And it, it's always been this kind of ugly stepsister because it never it's not really a programming language, and you know, developer support wanes over the years. But, you know, the other stuff that's just part of the underlying kernel, I mean, just leave it. I mean, I don't you're see right. why they – it would be more trouble to take it out than just to leave it. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. They All they do is make sure that they get a, a version of it where all the, all the pieces are in place. And it's all developed elsewhere. They just have to stick it in. And so I think you're right. I think they will keep it there for that reason. Apple script is their own thing. They have to put their own resources into it and they don't seem to be doing that much right now. We'll yeah. see how things go. Well, thanks again. And thanks for everything you do. And, uh, anybody who's interested, you can go over to Dr. Drang's website, uh, leancrew.com and check them out. You should definitely subscribe because there's always some fiddly bit of awesomeness that you find. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, yeah. your forbearance as I went on and on here. Now, this was great. This was great. Yeah. And, and we covered a lot of stuff here. So you can find links to everything that we talked about uh, in the show notes. You can find that at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. And you can also send us email at uh, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. 
Yeah, and don't forget, we've uh, we've got that Scan Snap Haiku contest that's going on. You can send those to that email address. And also, we talked about it last episode, but Show 100 is coming up. So if you want to be featured in our Episode 100 Mac Power Users Workflows, uh, send us an email with the uh, words Show 100 in the uh, subject line, and we'll probably be recording those in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing some fantastic uh, ideas from listeners. Uh, we're on Twitter at, at MacPowerUsers. Yep, I'm at Katie Floyd, and David is at MacSparky. And there have been lots of nice iTunes comments recently, so thank you everybody for that. We really appreciate it. And thanks to our sponsors for the show, Gazelle, 1Password, and Fujitsu. And for our next show, in theory, uh, we are going to be talking about Mountain Lion. Uh, assuming it's out, We've both been uh, using the beta, and uh, we have lots of thoughts about how you can incorporate it into your life. So if it's out, we'll be talking about it. If not, you'll be hearing about something else. There we go. All right. Thank you again.